Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Robert. And I'm Mark. And tonight, it's a mixed bag Omni Ramble. podcast rob the uh, 50th anniversary trailer slash ad slash whatever it was was released for uh, public consumption what do you think about that it's very pretty it's very slick it's uh, it's a lot like a lot of the marketing these days that you get with television it was uh i suppose high energy nice graphics bit of music you know swelling to a stirring crescendo and uh, and I mean it was essentially a summary of the, the the show's fifty years, beginning with Hartnell, and working its way up to up to Matt Smith. Um, it looked very nice, like, as I said before, it was very slick. Uh, I believe it was uh, designed by a company called Framestore, who, if you have a look around on the internet, uh, described the process uh, uh, as to how they went around about creating a series of two dimensional images and turned it into a three dimensional. Uh, travel travel log essentially through the show's history um the problem being with the explanation is that they use english but in a form that you might as well be reading esperanto for all the all the sense it makes you have to be a real a real (laughs) tech head to understand what they've done but in terms of uh if you were a real train spotter fan you could sit down there literally for hours i think uh judging from the commentary i've seen online and spot literally dozens and dozens and dozens of elements from the show's past so from that sense, it's 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 great. I'm not quite sure uh, what else it basically achieves, other than um, uh, other than sort of you know announcing the beginning of the the 50th anniversary celebrations on BBC. Like what you said, a bit of a mixed bag. It was very visually stunning. Uh, pushed all the right buttons from a fan perspective, but uh, ultimately it was like an aero bar. Lots of lovely uh, bubbles of nothing, really. But is is isn't that a lot like what modern television is all about? It's <laughs> Sometimes you feel you, you tune in for the spectacle and afterwards you wonder what it was all about. It was like my McDonald's meal today. It was great at the time, but five minutes later I'm looking for something else to eat. The Frame magazine, remember the Frame magazine? They did a special cover for the 25th anniversary where they had all these little references uh, to who's passed on the very front cover. It reminded me a bit of that where you sort of trying to spot all the different bits and pieces. I, I actually I do remember that, Mark. Actually, thanks for the thanks for the reminder because I remember remember picking it up in the early nineties uh, second hand, or I may have even bought it from overseas. And yeah, again, that was one of those. It was the same idea as as you said. Yeah, it was a grab bag of the show's history in in uh, in visual form. Yeah, I mean, uh, and from what I, again from what I read online, there were no actual actors live actors involved it was just a series of models and mannequins uh the hartnell the image of uh the first doctor there is is basically a mannequin uh and then they've sort of done some uh some rendering i suppose that you the technical people would use uh, to create to create his face and the same with pertwee and all of them were just basically models or photos or publicity shots i believe the tenant one was a publicity shot the only one obviously who was there live so to speak, was Matt Smith, where he you know grabs his sonic screwdriver, which for some bizarre reason is hovering in the air above him, uh, and then uh, aims it at the sky. So, uh, look, visually a visual feast for the eye, and you know take your hat off to the people who designed it. Uh, and I suppose now that we're basically within four weeks uh, of the anniversary uh, being screened, 
it being the 27th of October as we record. Uh, it's a good lead into um, to to a good beginning for a lead in into the into the uh, anniversary uh, celebrations. How many times have you watched it? I think I've watched it about four or five times, and I think the music at the end is a uh, it's sort of a hark back to the TV movie. Yeah, I suppose so. But I mean, these days you the sort of music that you get in these sort of genre movies are these massive swelling orchestras in the background that sort of you know. Get your heart pumping. They, they do get your heart pumping. Um, mm. I'm trying to remember the name of a duo who record music for you know science fiction and uh, movies and that sort of thing. Uh, I think uh, they, one of their albums was called Two Steps from Hell, uh, and their their music is really great. It does get the heart pumping, and, and that's the sort of thing that you get get from Doctor Who these days. I mean, Murray Gold uh, is the same sort of composer. Um, it's, it's emotional music. It's meant to get you, it's not meant to make you think or make you respond on an emotional level, uh, which is good for one thing and it's not so good for the other, but, uh, that's, that's the topic for another topic for a different day. But I only, I think I only watched it uh, two or three times on, on the, on the, on the day I showed it to my wife. Um, she looked at it and said, Oh, that, that looks nice. But then she, you know, moved on to more (laughs) useful things. But, um, I mean, I haven't sat down and, and, and counted the number of times uh, or the number of jelly babies spilling from the fourth doctor's, you know, uh, little lolly bag, for instance. But uh, no, it's it's nice to look at and a sign of things to come, I think. Now, also uh, this week, to our delight and surprise, uh, Big Finish uh, released The Lights at the End, their 50th anniversary story, which is obviously has come out a month earlier, I suppose, to try and um, get in before the 50th anniversary day the Doctor takes over. I mean, we're not going to review it, obviously, in depth because we're not that type of podcast, but um, have you had a chance to listen to it yet? Yes, while I was laying waste to my garden yesterday, I uh, I did listen to the entirety of the story. Um, Must have been gardening for a long time. Yes, and I will be gardening for a long time to come. Uh, what did you think of it, Mark? It pushed all the fan buttons for me. Uh, it was great to hear all the, all the obviously all the actors there to get all that together, but all the vocals together interacting with each other. But like a lot of the anniversary stories, three doctors and the five doctors came away from it going, "That was great." But would I probably listen to it again? No, probably not. It was um, not particularly celebratory. I think that I think one of the reasons why I like the five doctors a lot, despite its clear deficiencies in a number of departments is that it's just fun and it is a celebration of all of the elements of the show at that time. So I from from what from the interviews that I've I've heard or read with Nick Briggs, he wasn't keen on doing a uh, a multi-doctor story probably because, you know, it's just a very difficult thing to do and you know, you're not going to please everyone. So I think if his initial uh inclination was not to do a multi-doctor story, he probably should have stuck with that because not to get into to an in-depth review, it is a fairly functional script. And while it is entertaining to listen to the, the pairings and, and you know, the, the meetings of, you know, the Doctors together, there's nothing, from my perspective anyway, there's nothing particularly memorable about any of the, any of the exchanges. And while, yes, it's great to hear them, you know, all together um, in a fashion that we won't probably see in the uh, 50th anniversary story, which is, I think, basically going to have Tennant, Smith, Hurt, and that's about it. Um, as a as an anniversary celebration, I think Nick should have probably gone with his first, his gut at the beginning and sort of done something else that celebrated the show. Because I don't think this, 
as a, celebra- a celebratory exercise is particularly, you know, has any of that sort of a sense of a romp like the, like the Five Doctors. It was still a hell of a lot better than Zagreus. Yeah, but at least Zagreus was trying something different. I mean, I was, I was disappointed uh, with Zagreus to an extent, but at least that was an attempt to do something different. Uh, I mean, I think it failed more on... I think Zagreus failed for a number of reasons, uh, apart from casting the Doctors in different roles. I think it was too long, and the story just rambled on and on and on. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, look, I, you're sort of damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. So I'm glad to have it there. But like you, I'm, it's not something that I'll be rushing uh, again to listen to. No, I was reading some of the reviews of it uh, over the weekend on various Doctor Who news websites. And you know, they were raving about it. So I'm thinking, am I actually missing something? Why aren't I sort of oozing uh, about it the way some other reviewers are? So don't understand why it's, it's resonating with some people and not resonating with me. Maybe I'm just too cynical towards the whole anniversary slash 50th. I'm not too sure. Listening to it, I wasn't trying to be cynical about it I mean I had high hopes for it from when when it was first announced earlier in 2013 and like you I mean I, I didn't walk away feeling you know any particular buzz from it uh, I mean there were certain sections in it that I thought worked effectively there was this, the scene with um, the fifth doctor and Nyssa and, and, and the father that was very well done and spookily done but the rest of the plot was pretty functional so while I went was listening to it with a great deal of goodwill at the beginning by the end, it was just more like a, a paint-by-numbers exercise, and there was just... Look, you know, I've never written a script. I'm never likely to write a script. There's a, It's a difficult thing to do and get right. So hats off to, you know, the, the writers the big finish have got, and to Nick Briggs, because he takes on, you know, a, a lot of the workload. But it just... And yes, I agree with you. You, you read these reviews that, that, that rave, and you, you sort of think, well, what am I missing as a fan? I, at, at my age, have I lost the buzz? I mean, I still get a, a kick out of watching, you know, classic Doctor Who, and 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 despite my you know my previous comments, there's there's a, a, a deal of the new series that I I, I still enjoy, but um, I don't know, just has something died in me, Mark? I'm not quite sure. Okay, that's the end of the podcast for the for eternity. We're stopping now. <laughs> I mean, I, I had very high expectations of this. Story and also I have very high expectations of the Day of the Doctor, so I'm probably going to go in now watching Day of the Doctor, saying okay, just hold back on all that anticipation and just just you know go in there underwhelmed, I suppose, at the beginning and then hopefully come out surprised at the end. Well, I, I the problem with event television and and event this and that is that you go the the real in, enjoyment you get from any of it is the sense of anticipation beforehand. Because you let your imagination run free, and it, it takes you off to wonderful places. But then, when you plonk yourself down on the on the sofa, and you watch it depicted in front of you, it never matches your your imagination. Um, now, given I think that Stephen Moffat is taking a different approach to the Day of the Doctor, insofar as I think it's not going to be you know celebratory like the Five Doctors. Uh, celebratory is my word for the night. Sorry, folks. Um, I think it it may be more in tune with what I what, what I'm hoping, i.e., a story that just entertains. You know, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sure the day of the Doctor is going to be big and epic and heartfelt, and the the music will swell emotionally and all that sort of thing. I mean, I think I think that's part of my problem with the new series is that it trades on emotions a great deal more than the the, the classic series did, 
And not that I'm emotionally stunted or anything like that, and I can't deal with emotions depicted on TV or in real life, but uh, it just doesn't work for me when those emotions are shoved down my throat, thanks to Murray Gold and the performances and the script writing sometimes. Um, I've gone right off the beaten track here. I do apologize. but uh, And I sometimes think that Nick Briggs takes on too much. I mean, I've defended Nick Briggs previously on forums because people have gone... Oh, another release by Nick Briggs where he's written it, he's directed it, he's scored it, he's provided at least 10 of the voices. When when can this man disappear? Well, folks, I mean, you know, we should be glad that Big Finish has Nick Briggs working for them because he, he, he has built an empire around him that works. I mean, he makes the whole process work. He brings people in who are reliable. I mean, they have... I mean, I remember when they had the open submission process a few years ago and they got over a thousand submissions and in the end they really got only one or two writers out of that and he has lamented time and time again that it's very difficult to get reliable you know quality script writers um and that process just shows it so i mean for him to take on all these tasks i mean i take my hat off to him but you know i i personally i think it might have been better for him because he was in a hiding to nothing to commission you know someone like johnny morris or mark platt or john dorney to, to, to write uh, the 50th anniversary story because uh, I, there was very little spark in the story and that's a great pity. I keep saying it, we're not a big finish review podcast. I mean, I uh, I sort of dip in and out where the big event uh, releases happen. So like in Dominion and, and Dark Eyes, for example, I don't listen to the monthly range because to me there's actually too much product, all the different ranges they have. And, and as a casual listener, I go, oh, where am I going to start now? You know, it's it's actually quite daunting. Mm. So, I've actually made that decision. Do you know what? I'll dip in and out if a title interests me. I'll I'll I'll, I'll give it a listen. So this was definitely one I was going to give a listen, and um, I'm glad I listened to it. But I didn't get much out of it. Yeah, which is a real pity because um, I think there was a lot a lot of anticipation, definitely on my part anyway. But um, look, I might come back in six months' time and, and sit down again once the garden is into a into nice shape and. Uh, be able to concentrate on it more but yesterday I was a little bit sad tonight Mark and I are going to be talking about the Doctor Who DVD range in all its glory Mark what memories do you have of uh, the DVDs first coming out when the uh, five doctors was announced in 1999 I think it was I uh, made the extreme purchase of a DVD player which was uh, only I think they just came out maybe a year beforehand, but they were very, very expensive. And, of course, I bought the uh, the DVD player to play The Five Doctors. Um, so I was blown away. Uh, even though it was a special, the VHS special edition, they just re-released and tied it up a bit, but I was blown away by it. And, uh, the, I mean, the range has definitely come along in leaps and bounds from its initial uh, beginnings. Uh, I think we're very spoilt in terms of the extras and the restoration we get and compared to other TV uh, series and box sets. Last episode we went on about the restoration for the Web of Fear and Enemy of the World and we sort of take it for granted really um, what the great job they do. Do you buy any other DVD box sets of TV shows and things like that? Um, well certainly when I first purchased my uh, my first DVD player back in the late 90s um, I did go on a bit of a spree of buying uh, DVD box sets um, so, you know, series like The X-Files, uh, Millennium, uh, even an obscure US comedy series uh, called Sledgehammer. I, I bought all in in, uh, in DVD box sets because that was the most convenient way to do it. Uh, but with uh, with Doctor Who, um, there are... Well, at that stage, there, it was just single releases. And to a certain extent, 
I've always thought that uh, Doctor Who fans, because of their love for the series, the, the BBC has actually exploited that. So to an extent, I've always thought that we've, we're being ripped off because the prices we're paying for a single story are comparable to a complete series box set that you would you know get from a US series of like 22 or 24 episodes. Uh, now, compared, the, the quality of what we're getting is partial recompense because the, the, the restoration team have worked miracles with decades-old material. So, you know, I mean, processes like Vidfire have returned the black and white episodes, which only only exist on 16mm film prints, to their as broadcast video master tape quality, or as close an approximation. And and stuff like uh, the documentaries that we get, the commentaries that we get, the, the, the commentaries that we get on screen. Oh, the uh, production notes. The production notes that we get. I mean, they're fantastic. So on the, on the flip side, we're getting ripped off because we're paying $30 for a DVD, you know, first day release for one for one DVD where you can go buy a box set of a US series for about twenty dollars now, but they won't have all the bells and whistles more or less that you will get on a on a normal, you know, Doctor Who uh, DVD and even a DVD for some of the more less regarded stories uh, still are jam packed with uh, with you know quality goodness more or less. The main thing for me out of, out of buying the DVDs, apart from the obviously the restored pictures, is the, uh, the the documentaries. Some of them have been fantastic. I've got a little list actually. Do you want to hear what I've written down? Please. Looking for Peter, which was the uh, documentary on uh, Peter R. Newman, the writer of the Censorites. Nobody knew anything about him, and uh, Toby Haydock and uh, Richard Bignall. Uh, went off and located all this uh, information about him and met some member of, members of his family. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, Ed Strandling, his uh, era overviews that he does, uh, particularly the uh, Trials and Tribulations on the Colin Baker era, I've watched that about four or five times, that documentary. It's just, it's um, it's riveting for the wrong reasons, <laughs> if that makes sense. Ed, Ed Strandling strikes a, a sort of a semi-cynical pose about Doctor Who, but uh, I think his true feelings do come through with the dedication he brings to all his documentaries that he's done for the for the range. When it's announced that he's doing a, a, a documentary on a disc, I always really look forward to that. Um, on the New Beginnings box set, a, a New Body at Last, which is about Tom Baker leaving the show and the build-up to all that, that was a really good... Uh, uh, feature uh, Paul Venezes did that and uh, had Tom sort of being quite uh, frank actually in some of his um, discussions particularly around his, his marriage to Lala Ward uh, Paris in the springtime I really enjoy that City Death is one of my favourite stories so anything to do with that I'm, I'm there also on the Key to Time box set there's one called A Matter of Time which is an overview of the whole Graham Williams era the, the great thing about the DVD range for me has been the opportunity to reevaluate certain stories in certain eras and the, the Williams era for me has really... I've had a real big 360 on it, and particularly the Key to Time series. So that, that documentary really sort of rounds it all up and brings it home on, on how good I think their era was uh, under adverse circumstances, to be honest. On the Five Doctors Special Edition, there's a nice little 20th anniversary celebration uh, overview, which was hosted by Colin Baker. Oh, really? They're the ones that sort of stick out in my mind, the ones I can happily go back and rewatch. A number of times, and I always get something uh, new out of them. Well, listening to what you were saying, a couple of things struck me. Um, the, the 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 DVD range uh, and the mass access that fans have to them, and the mass access that they have to all these documentaries, means that the knowledge about the show has really been democratised. I mean, 
during the 70s and 80s, particularly the 80s, when you had people like Jeremy Bentham and and uh, and and Peter Haining releasing sort of you know big, hard, thick hardcovers full of you know knowledge on the background of the show, you were it was sort of from a you you were getting that information trickled down from a higher you know fan authority, uh, and you you sort of had to rely on their, those voices to be you know giving you the 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 the, the truth or the you know the, the correct information like you know the gunfighters for a long time was regarded very lowly amongst fandom simply because of what Bentham had written that's right and you because you had no access to the to the episode you had no access to the people who worked behind the scenes you that was just a myth that was handed down handed down handed down with no one really taking being able to give a second opinion because all that information was locked. Well, no one had any other way of conveying that information. You couldn't speak to a director or a or a or, or a scriptwriter or anything like that, unless you you know took the time to fly over to the UK and attend the convention. And all that all that paperwork was was hidden away. I think in Haversham, uh, in in an archive there. But now with the DVD range, as I said, as I indicated earlier, that all those voices have been brought together. All those people who are still alive, and even those who have you know passed away but had uh, interviews recorded, you get to have. A number of insights into the production process, and we're now in a privileged position of being able to hear those voices, hear those opinions, and come to a come to our own opinion. And now that we can see stories like the Gunfighters, and now that we can look at you know the, the experiences of the people behind the scenes and in front of the camera, it's changed the opinion of stories like that. You know, it, uh, you know, it's turned it right around. That's right. The Gunfighters is fantastic. Exactly. I mean, it's it's and it's. I mean, that's you know indicative of the sort of the the, the wild experimentation that you would, you got during the sixties in the series before the format settled down uh, in the early seventies. And, and and the other thing is that watching watching the, all those documentaries, you get a real sense of the wide and vast scope of the series history. You are looking at, for instance, I think it was on Robot they they showed uh, it might have been Robot that they showed um, the silent footage of a production team meeting. So you know you had you know Robert Holmes there, you had I think Terence Dix there, you had uh, it might have been Liz Sladen, probably Tom Baker. It's a pity the audio is lost, but. You, you get an opportunity, and this is the dedication of the, the fans who work have, have worked you know long, long years on a really on a shoestring budget to bring the very best that is available to the DVDs for fans to experience. So you get you know you get you get stuff like that silent footage. Um, you you get people brought together, uh, and you you get a sense of a shared experience like in the Earthshock uh, documentary because I mean you know again a lot of people were left a little bit speechless and, and jaws you know, dropped on the floor at the end of Earthshock. And what they did with the DVD release was, was bring you know, those fans together to re, relive and re-experience that, that sort of that seminal moment in the show's history in the early 80s. Um, but, I mean, you know, documentaries that, that, that come home to me, I mean, the Endgame documentary... Uh, on survival was was really I mean it gave all sorts of different views on you know the the series coming to an end in eighty nine and uh, I mean it sort of introduced me to Andrew Cartmel uh, as a presence who was a very influential figure at the at, towards the end of the series and you know he's he's sort of calmly relayed arguments about you know where the series was and what had happened it was was definitely something that I really enjoyed listening to um, and again. Not only do you get a, a deep sense of the show's history, but I mean also of the, the, the sort of the spin-off side of it. So there was a series of uh, of documentaries they did on the comics. You know the the, 
the the uh, the comics from the sixties and the seventies and into Doctor, Doctor Who magazine. Strip for action. Strip for action. That's right. And that was really interesting to see the evolution of the series in comic form. I mean, I have really strong memories of uh, Doctor Who uh, monthly in the early eighties with the uh, the the, the uh, some of the. Uh, comic strips they did during the Sixth Doctor's era which were I, I thought they were, they were wonderful and you, you, you that sort of just that brought it all back to me again watching that watching uh, that, that documentary that particular documentary which covered that era um, but I mean you know I mean I, one of the highlights for me was was a documentary about uh, Philip Hinchcliffe's TV uh, career where I think he was interviewed by his daughter and that was I mean it's it's de- usually the, I think a lot of a lot of fans don't really care about an actor's or a writer's career before and after Doctor Who, but to listen to Peter, uh, sorry, to, to listen to Philip Hinchcliffe talk about his career after the show, and then you get a greater sense and appreciation of what he brought to TV in, in the UK, and then sort sort of where his interests lay. And I mean, without that documentary, Philip Hinchcliffe is a bloke who existed for three years, and then sort of vanished off. There's uh, one of, the, and of course, the DVD range gives you a bit of a chance to see some oddball stuff. And uh, I think the uh, the high or the low point of that was the Oh Mummy skit <laughs> that appeared on the Pyramids of Mars. Uh, the guys who are now involved in Milk uh, Publications, or at least one of the guys, I think his name is Matt West, uh, he was instrumental in the Oh Mummy skit, which I think uh, it's probably good for a laugh for a couple of viewings, and then after that it sort of loses its, its gloss. But um, anything that can have... Uh, Sutex saying, I bring you Sutex's gift of milk, uh, is always good for a chuckle anyway. So that was, they're my high points. Yeah, there's actually one more I've forgotten. Oh, yes. It was called Check, Lies and Videotape. It's on the Revenge of the Cybermen uh, DVD. Now, myself and a lot of my friends love this documentary because it talks about the tape collecting uh, sensation uh, that used to you know happen in the, in the 80s and the early 90s where... You know, Doctor Who fans would trade material. And I used to trade material with uh, people in the UK and, and get tapes. So what you're saying is torrenting isn't a, just a 21st century phenomenon? I've never heard of that word. But that documentary, for me, is it just brings so much nostalgia when it talks about things like off-locks. And it, the reason why a lot of us wear glasses is not because of what you probably think. It's because of watching really bad copies of Doctor Who episodes. You know, you think you're watching The Tennis Planet. It's still snowing by episode three and they're indoors. It was the quality <laughs> of those episodes were that bad. Very nostalgic uh, romp through, uh, through the old days of tape collecting. And uh, you were going to talk about your low points? Ah, yes, my low points was... Um, there's a few, actually. So, on the State of Decay disc, there was a... I can't remember what it was called, but it was, it was about blood and blood products and talked about black pudding. Now, I love black pudding. You are British, aren't you? Welsh, actually. <laughs> the documentary was terrible. Although, the only good thing was that uh, the, one of the tracks it played was uh, off a band called Killing Joke, uh, Love Like Blood. It was a track I used to enjoy in my youth. Tell the any 
people think are bad, but the rest of the documentary was bloody terrible. Is that, did they have a documentary about horror and horror writers? I can't remember. I thought there's a well-known British horror writer named Ramsay Campbell. I thought he made an appearance in a, in a documentary on State of Decay. Well, unless he's a chef that makes black puddings, I'm not too sure who he is. On the, uh, on the latest edition of the Green Death DVD, there's a documentary called uh, What Katie Did Next. Now, when I saw that title, I thought, oh yeah, it's a, it's a discussion with Katie on what happened when she left Doctor Who. All it was was like a compilation of clips uh, from a, a, a show she was hosting when she left the, the series called Serendipity, which to me was just her with a bunch of hippies making things out of foam. It was just craft stuff. I was watching this for five minutes and going, this is one of those features I'll just watch once and never watch again. Uh, it was a bit of a wasted opportunity for me. The title, you know, what Katie did next to me sounded like it was going to be a discussion on what she did next, but uh, it just turned out to be a bunch of clips with a bunch of hippies. The Legacy box set. Uh, is this the the Legacy box set? Oh, is this the um, More Than 30 Years? The Charter More Than 30 Years uh, bundling. I mean, some of the bundling of titles has been uh, interesting, uh, like the Gunfighters and uh, the Awakening. And the CGI'd cowboy hat on Hartnell's head? I thought they were going to do something special with Sharda, and of course at the time it was mooted that potentially Ian Levine's Sharda would get on the on disc. Just just a asterisk there, it was mooted widely by Ian Levine and no one else. <laughs> um, although I, I remember going to a screening of Day of the Daleks, um, they showed it in the cinema before the DVD came out and Dan Hall was in the audience and he said to the audience, I've actually got a copy of Ian Levine's Sharda. Uh, with me and I'm going to watch it and you know make a decision so obviously the decision was made not to use it so what they did was just put the VHS edition out and Dan Hall I think I'm just paraphrasing he was basically saying well it wasn't finished on TV so we're not going to finish it now I just thought you know what it was just a wasted opportunity they could have done so much more with that if they didn't want to use Levine's cartoons I could have maybe used some of the soundtrack um, because obviously he got the actors back well the ones who hadn't passed on could have used some of the vocals to expand out the plot a bit uh, have still photos, like a, a reconstruction as opposed to the, the very ineffective links, in my opinion, of the VHS release and just, you know, restore the pictures of uh, of the Sharda footage. And then same with 30 Years in the TARDIS. They just slapped the unrestored version of that together and just put it on a, on a disc and with very little extras on it. I think it's indicative of their, you know, interest in air quotes in these two titles that they sort of left them until last to be released because, I mean... If there was an, un- I mean, if there was real interest in doing something with Sharda, and if there was the money there to do it, uh, you could imagine that they would have attempted some s- sort of decent reconstruction. Look, I think the time for you know Sharda having you know being completed was in 1980, and I think you know as as fans of a TV show, we're pretty damn lucky to actually get anything with regards to an incomplete story. I'm sure there are. You know, I mean, for fans, you know, again, in air quotes of Star Trek Voyager, you're not going to see a DVD release which is going to show the original Captain Janeway, um, you know, being released, the, the footage that, you know, for the first few days when she was there before she resigned. You're not going to see uh, any of that, I think, on DVD. But for, for Doctor Who fans, we're privileged in the, in the sense that we, we get stuff like that, which is, you know, effectively a story that was never completed and never broadcast. So while I, I, while I understand where you're coming from, uh, I think, you know, with all the best will in the world, there was just no money to do anything like that, unfortunately. And very little interest, even if there had been the money, perhaps. I just learnt something new then. I didn't know that there was an original uh, Captain Janeway. It's like Eric Stoltz in Back to the Future. 
Yes. Well, I only learned about Eric Stoltz about a decade ago. No, I think it was just to go off on a complete tangent. I'm going to pronounce her name incorrectly. She's a, the original Captain Janeway was a French actress, Genevieve Bujold. And uh, she didn't last more than three or four days. There, there is some footage on the internet, and, um, on YouTube, I suppose. But uh, then they got Kate Mulgrew, whose jaw is absolutely titanic. Um, but uh, yeah, we've we've moved way off topic there. But the, the, the central point there is that if you look at another TV series, a genre TV series, generally speaking, uh, you know they're only going to stuff it full of uh, press interviews and you know cast interviews, which are not going to give you any decent perspective. And Doctor Who, there's enough distance and time for you to get you know you know com- com- comparing views of, of, of what's going on i mean you you so i think some of the commentaries that you hear for instance from the peter davison era where the the cast members are openly mocking matthew waterhouse that's not hard but especially in black orchid i mean i know tegan was a mouth on legs but adric i think was just a stomach on legs <laughs> shows on dvd mark are there any particular stories that you watched on first viewing on tv years and years ago that having come to them now on dvd you've had a positive uh, reappraisal i think we discussed in our mccoy podcast some of the, the mccoy stories have definitely gone up in my estimation and in fact the pertwee era remember at the time watching us probably did too young to appreciate it uh, when they had the massive repeat run in 1986 over here we were very very lucky to get that actually by the way um but the pertwee era has just been fantastic uh, apart from Monster of Paladin, which I think is absolutely dull. Six episodes of just boredom. It's just terrible. And, and Pert, where you can just... He's just phoning it in by that stage. Just, you can just tell he's just had enough. He just wants to go. His back is telling him time to give it in. mentioned the gunfighters before. That's gone up as well. But uh, what about you? Well, just as an overall thing first, I mean, uh, I'm in many ways a pretty slack fan there's a lot of stories that I've not seen since they were broadcast in the late 70s and early 80s particularly sort of post Hinchcliffe uh, Tom Baker and sort of uh, post season 7 John Pertwee so being able to today watch stories like Day of the Daleks or um, the the Horns of Nymon which may or may not be a good example um, uh, Invasion of the Dinosaurs has been a real has been a real eye opener. I mean, I mentioned earlier uh, the the ability to watch these stories now without having sort of opinions jammed down your throats by you know the fan elites uh, means that I was you know you, 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 sometimes you're really surprised at how positive your reaction is. I mean, I remember as I indicated in an earlier podcast, I recently watched Destiny of the Daleks, and I had I had a lot of fun with that. I mean, you know, it's 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 not um it's not shakespeare by any stretch of the imagination but it is a really i mean for a, for an era that is slagged off time and time again for being you know too too uh, juvenile in its humor and uh, too cheap it it is it disney the daleks i i, I stopped i finished watching that and thought that's a decent story there's there's things in there that are really fun and invasion of the dinosaurs i pretty I'm sure I've only ever seen once, and I was really impressed by that. I mean, yeah, the, the, the special effects are, are ropey and all that sort of thing, but... Only some of them. The Tyrannosaurus X is definitely ropey. It's a story is absolutely fantastic. Yes, I mean, uh, Whitaker's story... And again, that's... I mean, it, it, it highlights to us that the, uh, the, the real strengths in the series... The real strength of the series is the writing. 
and everything else flows from that. Um, and if you can look past the, the visuals, which, look, at the time, we as viewers in the 70s and 80s, kids in the 70s and 80s, we didn't know any better. We did not know any better. And, you know, to see a dinosaur running around on your on your, uh, you know, your, your television set, your low-end television set compared to the things that you, the monsters that you get today was, was just fantastic. I mean, it is an adventure science fiction show. But in terms of uh, particular stories, I, when Horror of Fang Rock came out, I, I, I snapped that up and I was sitting there watching it completely enraptured thinking, this may be one of the best Doctor Who stories ever. And when you, th- when you th- think about it, even though it was sort of towards... It was the end of that great run of Hinchcliffe stories. It was a holdover from the Hinchcliffe era, effectively. In, in those four episodes, encapsulated some of the... Encapsulated the best elements of the series. You've got sort of a base under siege, heavy with atmosphere, well-written and believable characters in a tense atmospheric setup. And... It really never happened again for the series, other than Image of the Fendal. It never happened again for the classic series. And you think about it and you go, this is a template for the series that was never really used again. And it just sort of, it's, it's almost like a summing up of the best base under siege stories from the 60s and the early 70s. And mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I, I will come back to Horror of Fang Rock again and again and again and again because it's just, it's just wonderful. And it's got pornographic French postcards in it, so you can't you can't go past that. Now we've touched on this previously, Mark, uh, just with regards to the animations that have begun to proliferate over the last year or so, in terms of uh, missing episodes from otherwise largely comp- complete stories like the Reign of Terror and the Ice Warriors. As I've said time and time again, and I'll say again tonight, um, at best you only get an approximation of the performances uh, and the visuals, of course, in those animated episodes. Um, I mean, what if, what do you think of the of the effort to do it, the reasons behind it, and the sort of how effective what you've seen has been? I think it's commendable that they've actually gone down that path uh, to animate them. Uh, especially it, the, the other option was when the Tenth Planet came out on VHS, for example, it was a reconstruction. As much as that's okay, um, it is quite dull. The the, uh, the animation they've done for Rain, I said Rain of Terror, I found quite um, confronting almost. It was schizophrenic in some of the shots. Very rapid cut would wouldn't have been like that when uh, the real life visuals existed. Where the Ice Warriors went back to a more uh, South Park animation style. So. I think the results have been varied. A Tenth Planet, I think, which has been released uh, this month, definitely hits, I think, the right note in terms of the animation style. And, um, you know, it does does complete the story to me uh, in a way which a a reconstruction could never do. So I'm grateful for for having that. What about you? It would have been nice if they'd been able to sit down and have a think about the the animation style that they were going to adopt because um, there is a great deal of variety... Uh, between the sort of the, the, the type of animation that we're seeing or the, the visuals anyway. I mean, the invasion is a totally separate thing. It was funded separately, so the, you, you can't really say. And that was five or six years ago now. But uh, as you say, the Reign of Terror uh, animation is very... It's, 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 it's a modern animation. It's, it's, it's done with a modern sensibility about how you frame and cut and, and move the camera and all that sort of thing. So it is, it is very visually jarring. 
Uh, and then um, I, I'm with you. The animation that they use with the Ice Warriors is in some way just completely ludicrous because it takes you right out of the what you're listening and what, what you're meant to be seeing. And it is very South Park, unfortunately. Um, but look, it, it got the job done. It, it animated those, those, those episodes. But you're, you're right. The Tenth Planet um, is the style that I would like them would have liked them to have adopted from the very from, from the very beginning. Uh, it is very atmospheric. It is very moody. It is very sort of, I think, true to the er- to the era. Um, but you know, if that's all water under the bridge now, you can't sort of go back. As I've said before, it's an approximation. I mean, we now see with the two complete stories that came back recently, uh, animation would have missed you know some some wonderful uh trout and trout esque performances uh performance like you know he's skipping across the beach i mean you wouldn't have seen that you wouldn't have you, you would not have seen anything with regards to that at all in in an animation it was just him wandering off to the towards the beach towards the water um so but and i being a cynical old bugger i sometimes think the animation allows the bbc to release these stories so that they can sell them as a as a as a DVD instead of bundling them all together in a in a small box set like a Lost in Time two, and 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 sort of not making as much money uh, that way. But perhaps I'm just being too cynical. I'm not entirely sure. As fans, we are really well served by the dedication that you get from the members of the restoration team and the willingness of you know the BBC or its commercial arms to support their endeavours because you don't get that level of care and attention in just about any other TV series on DVD. As I said before, modern day TV, you know, the DVD boxes will be put on and you might get a commentary here or there and you might get a sort of, you know, a 10 minute made for press documentary and that's about it. You don't you don't get these gems, these interviews, these nationwide interviews with Troughton for the you know for the five doctors, or like I said before, you know the efforts to go and find the silent footage for Robot, or the efforts to hand paint the Mind of Evil Part One so it's now colour, or find that lost footage for you know Terror of the Zygons. We are really for all our whinging and moaning and being just plain old fans, we are really really lucky with what we've been served up in the last decade and more with regards to the DVD range. What do you think the future is for the range? I was reading today a British paper sort of saying that the download figures for Enemy of the World and Web of Fear were about 70,000, I think, downloads per stories. Which is astonishing. I mean, clearly digital downloads are the future of um, are the future of how we as consumers consume TV and movie and media, basically. I mean, that's the way of the future. We, uh, we, uh, uh, we have friends who rip all their DVDs they buy their DVDs they rip them and put them on hard drives and then they just flog off the uh, the, the physical medium on the internet because it's you know that's it's just a, a space saver I mean fans fetishize the physical product they fetishize the books they fetishize the DVDs the VHSs all that sort of thing we are fans are by and large hoarders and collectors going forward that's going to be less and less the case we've got a, a, a new generation of fans coming through who are, are digital fans, basically. They consume all their products on iPads and iPhones and, I, and iPods. Uh, so I think the future will be, will be a digital future, and I don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, at some stage, I would expect the BBC to start discontinuing the DVDs. When that, will, when that happens, and if it happens, I'm not entirely sure, but I mean, it's just going to be uneconomic to have warehouses full of 
these physical products when you know the fan watching community has moved on to something uh, less physical yeah from my perspective for the DVDs I like to have the particularly the Doctor Who ones they're the only ones I really collect now um, I prefer to have those the physical uh, copies of those in terms of if I, I don't buy a CD these days I usually download it and you know put it on my network and stream it everywhere I don't buy any that's um, uh, that, that media anymore so as you said the, the you know the youth for youth of today and even you know people of our age are moving away from having physical uh, media and moving on to, to digital channels and I was just going to say and, and the success of those numbers on iTunes for the enemy of the world and the web of fear uh, is I think would just reinforce that point with the BBC that the future is digital, and um, yes, there's you know an element of double dipping with the DVD uh, releases coming out later this year and early next year, but uh, in time they're just going to move to uh, a digital uh, way of disseminating you know all their products, uh, and DVD I think DVDs will sort of wither on the vine, but I mean VHS withered on the vine. We we're always moving forward to to you know better medium. Now, whether that means uh, at some stage perhaps you know there'll be Blu-ray box sets uh, because you know the BBC knows that fandom likes holding physical objects and fondling them, I'm not entirely sure. But the success on iTunes of the uh, those two missing stories, I think, may have uh, set off uh, some light bulbs above you know certain heads in certain important you know areas of the commercial arms of the BBC. I think they'll do season box sets on Blu-ray, but. In terms of upscaling the picture, I mean, most modern uh, Blu-ray players and high-definition TVs upscale that sort of media anyway, so it'll just be more of a space-saving exercise, uh, having all of seasons 15 or 16 on one or two Blu-ray discs as opposed to five or six now. So I think you will find they'll uh, start putting seasons out uh, on Blu-ray, but I wouldn't buy them again just to save some space. When really, I'll get the same picture quality from my devices that'll upscale it anyway. If they start, if they go down a really cynical route and start releasing box sets with additional extra material, I, I expect a lot of people screaming "Blue Murder" because that's just that's just you know taking fans for a complete ride. Yeah, but then fans don't have to buy it. You just say, well, I'm not, I mean, I didn't buy that Regenerations box set. There's no way I was going to buy Time and the Rani again and End of Time again. It was bad enough buying them first time around. Rob, have we got any feedback from our listeners there? We have been absolutely inundated with feedback, Mark. Uh, well, that's a slight exaggeration. We've had some feedback from our fans. So thank you to all who've uh, tweeted us and uh, you know, left comments on our blog. Uh, the first piece of feedback is from uh, Doc Hoom. Uh, he left a comment on our blog uh, to wits. I can't believe that you two, of all people, while discussing Enemy of the World, weren't ooing and ahhing at the spectacular vistas of your homeland. The beach shots alone made me want to reach for a surfboard and some sunscreen. <laughs> do they actually surf in the UK? Yeah, they do down in Cornwall, I think. I think there's some surf beaches down there. I thought Enemy of the World was actually set in Austria because some of the accents were extremely <laughs> dodgy. I thought, was it, was it called Strudelmander? 
The man of strudel. Man of strudel. But uh, I think Enemy of the World showed what a consummate actor Troughton was. You know, when he runs into the ocean, it's probably minus one degrees and he's acting his heart out saying how warm it is. But on the inside, he's probably dying. But the wonder he's trying to crack on the asteroid, everything's shriveled up and he's trying to get the heart started. For the longest time, I've, I always thought that uh, Enemy of the World, at least the first episode, and this is based on my reading of the novelization, was uh, the first episode was set on a beach in Queensland. Of all places. Now, then I could understand why uh, Trout would want to go for a run. But apparently it's northwest, the northwest coast of Western Australia, which, if anyone knows, is it might as well be the back end of the moon for its desolateness. It's basically out in the... It's literally the middle of nowhere. The, the, Dirk Hartog uh, missed, didn't miss a trick when he came, nailed a plate to a post, and then buggered off back to Java because there was nothing worth colonising there. And uh, no, I was not ooing and ahhing over the, in air quotes, spectacular vistas. Uh, but uh, thanks for the shout out there for Australia, Doc Hoom. Bernard JKD, um, he sent us a tweet saying, Your cast of the OmniFind was definitely the most factual and in-depth of all the casts that covered this topic. Thank you for that. Oh, look, I've listened to a couple of others, but none of them have really played... Well, that's where they made a critical mistake, Mark. The lack of Toto in the OmniFind discussion has been a critical failure by a lot of podcasts. The fact that we have run with Toto has been a, a sign of our quality and uh, our determination to stick to hard and true facts. So all those other podcasts who discuss the Omni Room of Finds, pull your socks up, fellas, because a very poor show with no Toto. Every day to Phil Morris, we bless the rains. Uh, down in Africa. Also on Twitter, Future Robbie, a.k.a. Rob Lloyd, amongst a myriad of other people, and were enlightening us about Troc, or Time Lord Rock. Apparently there's a band called Chameleon Circuit. Uh, I thought they were called Chameleon Tours, but uh, no, apparently called Chameleon Circuit. I haven't had, actually had a time to listen to this yet. Uh, Rob, what about you? Have you had to listen to Time Lord Rock? Popular music and Doctor Who don't work for me. I, I, it just doesn't compute. I, I don't understand. I was trawling the internet last night as I want to do on a Saturday night and I came across a YouTube video of a four-piece four-piece rock band that had written a song commemorating slash celebrating the return of the two Troughton serials and I would just look at it aghast as the lead singer pogoed up and down uh, for about 30 seconds before the actual singing part of it came along and I was just thinking just what is what, what's going on um it's just it's just the most bizarre thing and the whole idea of troc look the one time that i've seen doctor who and music t- come together in a wonderful way is doctor in distress no and i'm sure you're going to insert please don't but i'm sure you're going to insert something <laughs> from it we'll have uh, levine's lawyers on to us but uh, the one time i thought that uh, doctor who and music came together as only you know the young people hope it can, is when uh, Matt Smith uh, appeared out of a haze of uh, dry ice uh, whilst, I think it was Orbital, were playing at the Glastonbury Festival. Oh, yes. I think that when everyone looks back on Matt Smith's career as the 11th Doctor, that will be one of the key moments, the high points in his, his time in the show. He's come out... He, I think he's wearing some sort of light thing on his head. He's got, like, he's got the helmets from Earthshock. He borrowed those. He went He went to the BBC property stores and just put those on his head. Fantastic. And, you know, the crowd just goes crazy. The crowd of whippersnappers high on whatever the 21st century version of LSD is 
went absolutely ape and it was you know i was just i was watching it when it, on youtube and i like i am now grinning from ear to ear um but no tom lord rock uh what's all that about uh we'll finish off with uh, our friend noel from london hello noel um who's come out and said do you think the day of the doctor will be crap i hope it will be a lot better than uh, a lot of new who you're making the mistake of a lot of fandom by judging the show before you actually get to see it now it's it's a trait of fandom it's a real trait of fandom that they just sort of burn the house down before they live in it but uh all i can say is Noel, you know i take a zen approach to these sort of things what will be will be and you know just sit there sit yourself down at x o'clock on the 23rd of november and uh and just enjoy it don't anticipate it don't go for spoilers don't listen to discussions or rumours or complaints. Just sit down and enjoy it. Because, you know, the people behind it, they don't want to make rubbish. They wake up in the morning and they think, I'm going to do the very best I can because I'm getting paid a damn good wage. Can't go in with any preconceptions. Don't think it's going to be crap. Just sit down and enjoy it. Because I know I'll, I'll sit down with the intent to enjoy it. Look, there's a lot riding on it. I hope it delivers. I'm just going in with low expectations, so I won't be disappointed. So It's really sad that we've we've reached this point where... It is, isn't it? Like, why aren't Jazzed. we enthused? Yeah, we're a bit, um, yeah, we're a bit down on it, aren't we, really? Are we burnt out from the fact that there's been no publicity prior to, you know, the trailer? Or the, sorry, the 50th anniversary advertisement? I think the uh, release of the Web of Fear, Enemy of the World, was, to me, the highlight of the 50th, so anything else is like, oh, yeah. It really, oh, jeez. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit flabbergasted at my own reaction. <laughs> yeah, I, as you can hear in my voice... I understand why the BBC can't have spent the last, well, 10 months now pumping up the 50th anniversary because I suppose that's not how the publicity machine in TV, you know, works. You can't because people by month three will be going, stop talking about it and they will just turn off in droves. But it's been largely 10 months of echoing silence filled mostly with the wines of fandom. Why aren't we being served up more, Mr. Moffat? We deserve to know more, Mr. Moffat. Or the feverish rantings of the Omni-Rumor, which has just basically filled up the gap. And now, um, you know, the euphoria of the uh, the return of the two Trouton serials still lingers. And it really feels to me anyway, for my, just speaking for myself, as everything else after that, you know, fantastic event is just sort of a, you know, we're, is an anti-climax. And I'm not feeling it. I mean, I'm going to, uh, I'm going with my family and some friends to uh, view it uh, at, at a cinema in 3D. So from the perspective of a family outing on a Sunday morning, that'll be great. We'll, off, we'll go off and, and have lunch afterwards. But in terms of the actual episode, I'm, I'm comfortably numb at this moment in time. I tell you what, though, as you said last podcast, I'm going out to the UK and I'll be at the convention on the 23rd of November. The BBC hasn't come out and said, "Oh, this is what we, you know, we're going to organise this for the uh, attendees." Nobody knows what's going on, so we're sort of hedging our bets. Do we actually go and book uh, a cinema session in a 3D with a, uh, one of the chains over there, or do we, you know, the vein hold out, wait for the BBC to say, "Oh, by the way, we're going to do something for the fans." at the event or a nearby uh, cinema at the event because we, the convention uh, goers don't know how, how they're going to see it on the 23rd of November. So 
I could be sitting in a hotel room watching it for all I know. It, it may be a rights thing. You know, you, you see those, you know, on the DVDs, you see those uh, warning uh, scripts come up. You know, you can't watch this on an oil rig. You can't watch this in a hospital. You can't watch this in a public gathering. It may be just as simple as that, that they, they just, even though it's their product, they can't do it or they haven't gone about to you know getting the waivers signed but you would have thought that they would have worked that out you know at the time of organizing the event because what's the what's the point of celebrating the the 23rd of november at a massive authorized convention if you know you can't actually see it as it's being screened or sent somewhere to see it as a as a collective event or at least give people information saying plenty of other choices to go and see it go and book now where everybody's been left sort of hanging. Yeah, an unfortunate uh, series of uh, events. Well, that's the end of our discussion uh, tonight, uh, everyone. Thanks so much for listening once again to uh, 42 to Doomsday. Uh, as always, you can contact us on Twitter at uh, 42 to Doomsday, or you can send uh, an email to our email address, which is uh, 42todoomsday at gmail.com, or drop by our uh, our blog, uh, 42 to Doomsday. Uh, .wordpress.com, I think it is. Leave a message like Doctor Whom did. Uh, again, we welcome all messages of support, of criticism, suggestions, ideas for discussion topics. Uh, again, you know, we're, we're here to, uh, to please you, to pleasure you in any way that we can. Any way that we can. But we will only be able to do that if you tell us how to pleasure you. So, you know, please get in touch with us because... We know that you need a lot of loving. So to close off, I've been Mark and I really do love the show. I've been banned by Ian Levine. Again. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see you next time. Mm